0: So we are in a sermon series, which is called All In. And what we are doing is we're exploring what it means to say yes to Jesus. Um, As I spend some time with some of my guys, I do therapy at a local rehab here. Uh, One of the questions that I often ask them is, what is stopping you from going all in with Jesus? What is stopping you from going all in with Jesus? And I know that is when I was a younger believer, was a scary thought to go all in with Jesus. I know that I was afraid to actually say yes to him and to follow him um, completely. And so I understand that, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's the most fantastic thing I've, I've ever done. And then on the other hand, it can seem a little bit intimidating. And so we just came through the season of Easter where Jesus was resurrected. And one of the things that's interesting is that at the cross all of his followers had abandoned him they all thought that he was a failure there were only three people at the cross with Jesus so the rest of his disciples had all thought that he was a failure but then After Easter, they go all in with Jesus. And so something happens to these people that think he's a failure. And then they see him risen from the dead and they go all in. And so what we see from the believers or his followers is they go all around the world. They plant churches, they write the letters of the Bible, they start riots, they get martyred, and they change the landscape of the known world. I mean, the Western world has been shaped by these men and women going all in with Jesus and his uh, teachings. And so... The question for me in terms of, you know, going all in, what did these people, the early church, what did they know? What did they be, per se, and what did they do to go all in with him? And so last week, I talked about the first aspect of going all in, that it is something that we do together. This is a team sport, that we are meant to be a part of a community. God created us to journey together together which is church, what we call church. The disciples were more than just one, so they were plural in the sense that they journeyed together. And then they went out and they created churches or groups of people who met together. And so this idea of going all in is not something that we, it's an individual decision, but then we ultimately live that out together. And so um, what did the early church know, be, and do to go all in? And so today we're going to be talking about spiritual practices. And so when we look at this picture here, when we're thinking about going all in, this is kind of a end point per se, because you're looking at this gentleman and he's surfing this wave, which is so big. It's so scary. (laughs) I went to Mavericks once, which is a huge surf spot. I did not surf. I just looked at it, people surfing out there on like 30 foot waves. I I was so afraid. It is huge. Right, So this idea of practicing, this is where we want to be, all in with Jesus, but we need to practice. And so spiritual practices are things that we can do in our life that help us to get to a place to where we can be all in. Because he didn't start here. This is essentially where he started. Because we don't start at dropping in on huge waves or you know, doing all of these amazing things for Christ. We ultimately, we practice and uh, we take time and we start out on smaller waves, and, and we uh, learn how to follow Christ, and we learn how to do the things of Christ. And so as I was searching all of these photos of little kids surfing, I just couldn't stop them all. This is just absolutely too cute. I mean, so you see, right, these little kids, they're learning how to do this, and at some point in time, uh, then they learn how to surf bigger and bigger waves. Isn't that cute. But we don't start in dropping into these huge waves or like, because even when you look at the disciples, uh, they had some issues with Jesus. They weren't completely all in with him. They had to learn as well. And so we need to practice following Jesus uh, to participate in certain practices to help us to know God and to make him known. And so uh, when we look at the life of Jesus, he was asked, what is the most important thing? What's the most important commandment? And then he says this in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' And Jesus replied, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart "'and with all your soul.'" And with all your mind, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So again, when Jesus gets crucified, they think he's a failure. They think that Rome has won again. Rome again has beaten um, the Messiah. But then when he's resurrected, the disciples recall everything Jesus said and did. So again, they think he's a failure. But then when he's resurrected, they're like, whoa, wait. We need to get together and write down everything that we can remember about what it is that Jesus said and did. Why? Because he came back from the dead and that's a big deal. So obviously this guy is really important. So we should write down what it is that he said and what he did. And the other thing is that Jesus left them an example to follow. His life was essentially a classroom of what it meant to do this, to love God and to love your neighbor. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright, and he said something. I think maybe it was a book I was reading or a podcast or something. And he said, so the interesting thing about Jesus, if Jesus was born and then we put Jesus in a barn for 30 years and we took Jesus out and we crucified him um, then we, and then he was resurrected, we would still have the forgiveness of sins and we would still have all the essentially benefits of what cre- Jesus gave to us and that he was born and he died and was resurrected. And so we would be free of our sins and, and we would still you know, be born again. But Jesus lived a life for three years, which was very public. He went out and he did things. He went out and he said things, uh, essentially to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. But Jesus was also doing something in the midst of all of this that I think that we misunderstand, that he was literally a living classroom. He was showing these people that were following him, the disciples and all the the women who were following him, and all the people who were looking all around what it meant to be in the kingdom of God. And so his life in community, 12 disciples, 24-7, and what was he teaching them? He was teaching them what to know, to be, and to do within the kingdom of God in that Jesus's life is a blueprint of how to live a godly life. So we can't miss that, that he could have just been born and we could have just put him off somewhere and then he would have been crucified and resurrected and we still all could have been born again. But he chose to live publicly to teach us what it means to live and demonstrate and proclaim the kingdom of God. His life was a classroom. And so when we think about this idea of spiritual practices, these things that we do to help us to see God as he is, to see Jesus as he is, and to follow him, that's what we're going to be talking about today. The way that I like to characterize spiritual practices the best is this something that we call the the relational triangle the relational triangle if we just break it down into three different aspects of our life one is up which is our relationship with God the next is in which is our relationship with our church family And then we have out, which is our relationship with the world that does not yet believe. And so uh, I I really think just breaking it down, simplifying their practices that I do up, in, and out. And so as we look at these different practices, uh, they kind of, and this is not an exhaustive list of all of these, but there's upward practices of prayer, fasting, studying the Bible, solitude, silence. There's inward practices of worship, of guidance, confessions, celebrations, small groups, things that we do with our faith community. And then there's outward practices, which can be simplicity, work, service, evangelism, and justice. And so if we look at these different practices that we can do to help us grow in our relationship with God, these are things that he invites us into. So... Um, first question and you guys can answer is what here actually looks appealing to you when you look at this list what things do you look up out there and you're like that actually looks appealing to me that's something that I would enjoy doing you going to shout it out prayer, prayer. small groups, small groups. Service. service Bible study from the New Testament guy silence solitude Justice, service, yeah. Anyone else? What looks appealing? (laughs) Yeah, he knows he should like simplicity, but it's difficult. Okay, what up here looks intimidating? Something that you don't necessarily want to do. What is it? Fasting, amen to that evangelism work confession who said ooh? someone said ooh to confession that's my wife oh my gosh man all right shut it down shut this down shut this whole thing down anyone else what 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 up here looks intimidating anything else solitude yeah study anything else what is it? Silence. silence. Yeah, silence can be scary. But what we see, if we look up here, Jesus practiced all of these. These are all things that he did. And the cool thing about Jesus, and I think that it can be overlooked, is that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And so while he was on earth, he was fully God, but at the same time he experienced everything that we experienced because he's fully man. And so he practiced all of these things. And there's five examples where Jesus practices solitude and prayer and silence. And I think it's important, again, when we look at him, again, his life is a classroom. He was teaching people, giving us an example of what it means to live a godly life. And so if we, we look at these... Um, One is to prepare for a major task in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was baptized, he spent 40 days praying in the wilderness. To recharge after hard work, Mark 6, 30 through 32. Jesus sent the 12 disciples out to do the ministry. To work through grief, Matthew 14, 1 through 13. After Jesus learned that his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded, he went away by himself. Before, Before making an important decision, Luke 6, 12 through 13. Early in his ministry, Jesus spent the whole night alone in prayer. The next day he chose the 12 disciples. Uh, In a time of distress, Luke 22, 39 through 44. Hours before Jesus was arrested, he went to the Mount of Olives to pray. So we see that Jesus practices silence and solitude when there's certain things that are going on in his life that are big events. Um, And so even he gets away. Again, he's fully God, but he's fully man. He needs to go away and recharge. He needs to go and prepare. He needs to go and be alone with the Father because it is uh, incredibly important. And so if he does it, then... How much more should we be doing it? So today, I think it's important to focus on one practice. And the practice that I'm going to be focusing on is this idea that I really appreciate. It's called margin. That we would have margin in our life. Space. Clear space. Nothing going on in that moment space. Silence, solitude, whatever you might put in there. But this idea of margin, that I'm in there, And there's all these pressures around me, all these things that need to be done, but my life has margin, okay? Margin to be, that I'm able to be, that I'm able to be in the presence of God, that I that to be ourselves without identifying with any type of task or work. Because oftentimes, how do we define ourselves? By what it is that we do, by what it is that we accomplish, by uh, the things that we have accomplished. So just be, to be able to be myself. And at the same time, to be able to be hurt, to be able to be confused, to be able to grieve, to have space to be able to do these things. So we're going to look at the Matthew 14 text Uh, with Jesus, finding out that his cousin had been uh, beheaded. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and he's talking about Jesus. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because Herodias, his uh, brother's Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. "'Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people "'because they considered John to be a prophet. "'On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest "'and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath "'to give her whatever she asked.' Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, because, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. So here we see in Jesus's life that is his cousin, who is John the Baptist, starts calling out one of the rulers like you shouldn't be sleeping with this woman because someone else's wife. And so then in the end, there's this scheme, which sounds like some crazy movie to where this girl dances and pleases him and says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And so this is Jesus's cousin. This is his family member. And he finds out that he got beheaded. And at the same time, Jesus would know that he's going to die as well. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus goes away and creates margin in his life. He goes and creates space in his life. He goes away in silence and solitudes get away. And so when we think about how do we deal with grief? How do we deal with death? How do we deal with powerlessness? Jesus creates margin in his life. Space, time, openness to just be, to be by himself. Because all these things are happening. And even in in this, it says, and we can see the crowds were all over Jesus. They wanted to be with him. And when you think about it, I mean, if you only had three, three years on life to do all the work that God had asked you to do, you'd be at work nonstop. You would think that rest would probably be a waste of time. But we see that Jesus, both fully God and fully man, often goes away to rest, often goes away to just be by himself. When we think about margin, um, this is what our lives are supposed to look like with, with margin, okay? When you think about margin, it's, you find it often in text and you see in books that there are margins here on either side of the text and you can see that. And it's clean and it's legible and it actually looks really nice. Um, and so this is what our lives are supposed to look like, clean and, and the margins are really nice. But this is what life looks like when the margins start to get dirty. And I'm not making fun of anyone's Bible in here, just in case you are wondering. But when the margins start to get crowded out, when there's things in the margins, all my time is being taken away. There's always something to do, always somewhere to be. I should be someone that I'm not. I ought to be someone that I'm not. This is what it looks like. But what, what does a life feel like that has no margin, that has no space, anxiety, depression, resentments. We start blaming things out there, people who are constantly bombarding us with invitation. I have no space. I can't do anything. I'm just so tired of this. Again, Jesus gives us an example to follow, which is to have good margins. And when we look at the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, um, he believes that we should have margins, or we see in his life that he has space, but he does it a little bit differently. So we can read about Paul's experience in his letters, and he often practices community prayer, confession, and service. But Paul's life was filled with space, filled with margin, filled with openness and, and, and places to just be. So, for example, in Acts 13, 1 through 5, it says this, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, and Saul, later named Paul, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, later Paul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them uh, them off. The two of them went on their way by the Holy Spirit and went down to Seleucia and sailed um, from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Uh, John was with them. As their helper. So what we see here is that they're worshiping. There's prophets. There's teachers, and they're saying, like, "Hey, set apart Barnabas and Saul, who's later going to be Apostle Paul, and they're going to go and do work for me." So they sail from one place to another. They sail from the mainland to Cyprus, which was uh, is still an island. And so it seems like they just go from point A to point B, and it's just one sentence here. And so it seems just so quick, but in reality, it's about 130 miles away. Which, when you think about 130 miles that's about an hour and a half in the car if you're driving 75 miles an hour big deal right I mean tonight, all of us were like hour and a half in the car we can listen to podcasts we can do whatever it is that we want but they went there by boat and so when you think about that you're like yeah like I I love boats boats are awesome you can hang out and you can do all sorts of stuff in the boat I mean, when you think about that, you're like, I'd love to be on a boat. But this is, in reality, what they would have, you know, more likely been on. And that 130 miles would have taken about 24 hours. So just one little sentence. You're like, yeah, point A, point B. Reading, Sacramento, not a big deal. This is 24 hours on something like this. And they weren't asking, like, hey, I think my network isn't working out here. I mean, are there no cell towers here? <laughs> There's nothing like that. That is a ton of space. That's a lot of And, I mean, when you think about Paul, and you see him traveling, or any of the disciples, and even Jesus... You basically had three options a boat. If you were lucky, you had a donkey. And more than likely, you were walking. That's a lot of downtime. These guys had a lot of margin in their life. So when you think about us, when you think about our life, our lives are basically nonstop. Nonstop. We live in such a different world, it is out of control this is so foreign to us I mean when we really think about boating you're like yeah that's what I want to do and what's happening on this this is a non-stop party just crazy time that's what it is you're not good I mean you could go away to relax but essentially it's just a carnival that is on the ocean which is why I don't know that I'll ever go on a cruise I'm like why would I do that I just like this seems so weird but when we think about us and our our lives are non-stop so here here's a kind of a here's a question what in our culture what time is it you won't know what time it is in our culture all the time it's go time all the time it's go time all the time that's our culture that's where we live go time non-stop One thing after another. Work, family, recreation, screens, news, all of these things. All the time, we are inundated. I mean, here's an interesting question. How much news and information are you really designed to even be able to handle? Do you think about it? All of us, when we think about wars, famines, murders, lawsuits, droughts. I mean, there's droughts in one place, floods in another, tornadoes, economic compl- uh, collapse. All of these things. All of these things just crowding crowding out our relationship with God or even our relationships with ourselves. And not only that, at this point in time, it's with us all the time. You were not designed to know about all the worlds or all the wars that are going on around the world. And so when we're looking at our screens, when we're supposed to be resting, I mean, interesting thing enough, I mean, as a therapist, and I mean, this should be common knowledge, when you're looking at famines all around the world, you are having a visceral reaction to that. And your body starts to release hormones and other chemicals that make you like tense up and you're afraid and you're scared and you can't believe this is happening, but you're actually in the safety of your own home and you're in bed and you're supposed to be relaxing, but your body is going into like fight or flight. This whole idea of margin, I mean, this is so important for us. And so essentially your body is thinking like, man, it really is the end of the world and this is horrible and I can't believe all these things are happening when in fact I don't know that we were ever supposed to know about all these things that were happening all over the world. It's overwhelming. If you're not overwhelmed, it is overwhelming. Podcasts, videos, tweets, text, news, Anxiety, depression, frustration, fear, right? We're constantly impending storm, impending doom. That's wild. We're not meant to know all that stuff, but it's at our fingertips. News alerts come up. You're like, oh my gosh, there's a devastating tornado someplace that I have no idea where that's at and not really affecting me personally, but I feel it really is. All right, so here's Jesus and he. This is by one of my favorite um, um, painters, James Tissot. And he. Here he is. He's he's doing the painting of Jesus sleeping on the boat while there's a storm so Jesus is in a storm and he's sleeping and all the disciples start like freaking out they're like oh my gosh Jesus you you need to do something uh, because the storm is just kind of crazy and so then they they wake Jesus up and so what I thought that I would do is kind of like rewrite the text not literally but just kind of into our own thing and so Jesus is sleeping he wakes up and he's like why are you waking me up and James says well well Peter's been online Jesus and he's been reading about conspiracy theories all over the world and the world is gonna end But in many ways, that's our reality. Jesus, get up. You have no idea what's happening. And Jesus is like, no, I think I do. Peter, get off the internet. Margin. Margin. We need margin. We need space. We need to have boundaries. We need to have healthy behaviors that help us to follow Christ. These practices seem so simple. They seem like nothing, but in fact, they're very, very meaningful. We're not meant to know everything that's going on around the world. Okay? We're supposed to know what's going on just in our, our locale right here. Okay? Everyone, I want everyone to look out these windows right here. This is what you're supposed to know. This is what's going on in your world right now. This is what you're supposed to see. I should have no fear. Clearly, God is telling me it's going to be a beautiful day today. I can see that. This is what's happening. This is what I'm supposed to know. If I look around the world, I'll see something different. Here's some other things too. Very simple. When the sun goes down, that's a sign that rest is near. You're all, God, give me a sign. When the sun goes down, that means that we should be getting ready for sleep. God, I need another sign. When the sun comes up, that means we're about to like get busy and go to work. These are clear signs to us. We're up all night. Rest, peace, slow, relinquishing or giving away control that I don't probably have anyways. Knowing that I'm not in control, knowing that he is. These are all things that we get when we practice margin, when we practice getting away and just being with him, letting go of these things that we think that we're in control and need to be in control of, when in fact we don't. Richard Foster, who is a fantastic theologian, says this, spiritual disciplines or practices can do nothing. They can only get us to a place where something can be done. We can get a sign from God in that we're so exhausted that we can't continue to even go on any longer. And that will be a very clear sign from God, that your body will basically force rest upon you. Or we can practice spiritual practices, again, that put us in a place to where God can do something. He'll, he'll speak to us and, and allow us to experience His peace So how do we go all in with Jesus? First is community and church doing this together and practicing those things that we want to practice and also practicing those things that we're not necessarily fond of practicing. And then next is this idea of the relational triangle, that I orient my life around practices that help me to connect with the Father, that I orient my life in ways that I practice things that help me to connect with my faith community and then last, I practice certain things that help me to demonstrate the kingdom of God to people who do not yet know the kingdom of God. So, what if, like the little tiny surfers, we just started small and we tried something very simple in terms of up, just practicing margin, practicing silence, practicing solitude, trying to find some space in your life this week to get away with God, to just, to just be. And what if, in terms of in, we connect a little bit more with church? And then without, I do my work for you, Jesus, that I dedicate what it is that I do to Him. All seems fairly simple. It is. But it's difficult at the same time. He's not the only voice out there calling for our attention. Next, we're going to have communion. We do this every Sunday, and um, the cracker represents Jesus' body that was broken for us, that he's the only human that didn't have a broken body, but he allowed his to be broken for us so that we too could have a whole body like he has, and that the wine represents his blood that was poured out for us. For our sins, for our past, our present, and future sins. And that we are in him and he is inside of us. And that we are born again, new creations. So the way that we do communion, if you are a believer in Jesus or if you would like to start following Jesus today, we come down the center aisle. You do and you dip take a cracker you dip it into the wine and then you'll go around like this so we have a good flow and then we'll hold on to the elements together and then we will all partake of communion so if you would like to take communion please come on down Well, Jesus, we thank you for coming and dying on the cross for us. And thank you for giving us an example of what it means to live a godly life. Would you help us to follow you, to trust you, and know that we are in you and you are in us. We thank you for giving us this new life. Let's partake. Well, why don't we stand? Um, if you want a prayer for anything, if you wanted prayer for more margin in your life, feeling rushed, can't control your schedule, or anything else that God put on your heart this morning, we would love to pray for you. You can come forward, be folks up here that lay hands on you and pray for you. Um, and if not, that's fine. If you're going to be a part of the newcomer's lunch, it'll be downstairs right after service. And if not, then I'm just going to pray a prayer of blessing over us. God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have given us brothers and sisters to walk with and that you've given us the Bible to be able to read and understand you. Would you help us to be able to know you more and make you known? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill us, that you would empower us to be able to see you rightly and to be able to... Live in such a way, God, that would represent your kingdom, that those who do not know you would come to know you as we know you. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.